Greetings. I'm Raman Chada, founder of the Junto Institute. Welcome to Flourishing Together, where we have inspiring conversations with people who are becoming infinitely better at who they are and what they do. Our guests on this episode are Patrick Tanuz of Tiesta T and John Barnes of Infuter Data Solutions. We're going to kick things off with Patrick. He is a co-founder and president of Tiesta T and a Junto alumnus. Along with his co-founder, Dan Klein, Patrick launched Tiesta T in 2010, when both of them were still in college. Tiesta is a Chicago-based wholesaler of loose-leaf tea products and accessories with a mission to make loose-leaf tea understandable, accessible, and affordable to mainstream consumers. The company has grown to being in over 6,000 stores worldwide, with distribution in all 50 states, Canada, Mexico, and the Middle East. It's available in hundreds of coffee shops, tea houses, and cafes, as well as big box stores like Target, Safeway, Bed Bath & Beyond, and Whole Foods. A few years ago, Tiesta was named the fastest growing company in the specialty tea industry. You can find them online at tiestatea.com, and that's Tiesta, just like Fiesta, but with a T. No pun intended. Patrick is a uh, passionate, heart-on-his-sleeve young man who combines a really big heart with an infectious smile and a strong moral compass and intense drive. He's without question one of the better students that we've had at Junto over the years. Not only because he shows up and he has a dedication to lifelong learning, but most importantly, the continued work that he does at applying what he learns. One of my greatest joys at Junto has been watching this young man grow right before my eyes. Welcome, Patrick. Great to see you. You as well, my friend. How's it going? Very well. Um, always wonderful to be with you. And uh, we've had the good fortune, or I should say, I've had the good fortune. I don't want to speak for you. Uh, <laughs> to having built a, uh, a really fulfilling relationship and friendship with you over the last uh, six years or so. So it's a delight to have you as one of the first guests on um, Flourishing Together. Appreciate it, Raman. It's an honor to be here. And uh, I hope my journey through EI can resonate with the listeners. Yeah. So uh, as we uh, do all the time in our sessions, we're going to open up with the emotion wheel, which I know is something near and dear to your heart. Um, so let's start and, and find out how you're feeling right now. I am feeling pretty enthusiastic. Today was a really, this week has been really good. I just turned 31. Business is going really well. Uh, our team's starting to come together. And it was one of those days where the, you start seeing all the pieces kind of line up. Then you leave the office, sun's out, looking good. You just, you feel I'm very enthused. Terrific. Um, I'm cheerful because spring is finally springing in Chicago. And I'm also feeling proud that you're here. It's just really cool to have someone who's been with uh, Junto for so long um, sharing what you're about to share. Uh, so I'm really also excited to have you here. Okay, so I want you to open up with sharing the first experience you recall with leadership. You know, so I was thinking about it, and the the first thing I could remember was being the leader in my neighborhood. I was the guy who organized all the backyard activities in the neighborhood. So I was the guy who picked up the phone, called the parents, say, hey, can Mark play today? Mark would say, yeah, I could play. Then I'm on the next line. I'm calling you know, Lisa, can Lisa play today? Lisa can play. I said, all right, guys, let's all meet in the backyard at four o'clock and we're going to play a game called, you know, running bases or uh, um, the one where you spread Rover, Red Rover. And so now that I think about it, that was at around six or seven years old when I was truly gathering the, the neighborhood together to play activities. And <laughs> you don't think that those are signs of leadership when you're growing up, but now here I am and you're making me think about it. And those are true signs of leadership and something similar that I've, I've taken. Not Now I don't just organize my neighbors, but I organize my group of friends. That leadership has kind of grown with me my entire life. But no one told me when I was six year old that those were leadership qualities. They thought I just wanted to get out of the house and hang out with friends. <laughs> 
That's a, that's a great story. Uh, so you mentioned that you're still kind of a gatherer of people. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite things to do is bring people together. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And organize things, events. Yeah. Um, okay. We're going to jump right into this emotional intelligence stuff. You've been an avid practitioner and supporter of it for as long as I recall. And you guys were in our program in 2013. And then both you and Dan, your co-founder, uh, were stayed in your forums for a few years. And then uh, last year, you were in our first masterclass in emotional intelligence. So this is something that, that you've taken really seriously. You've invested a lot of time in it. Uh, you've invested a lot of money in it. What is it about emotional intelligence that resonates with you? This answer might come across weird to some people, but growing up, I wasn't a good student. And what I mean by good student, that wasn't defined by myself. That was defined by my school. Uh, They taught you things like chemistry, history, English, mathematics, and statistics, whatever it might be. And unfortunately, I, I struggled mightily growing up. And I was generally just not really regarded as someone who could do something with their life because I struggled with my academics. That followed me into college. I couldn't do much into college. I didn't know what I was doing. There was one thing I did learn in college that changed my life and shows the abilities I had. And that was I learned the language of French. I put my mind to it. I really cared about that subject and I learned it. And so growing up this entire, my entire life, I was thought that there was something wrong with me because I couldn't do normal school. I couldn't learn history. I couldn't learn math. I couldn't learn science, but something like a language was so easy to me. And it was because I had this desire and ability to speak and connect with others. But growing up, they never taught me that. So the minute I sat down in Junto, I started seeing some of the strengths that I had that no one ever told me I had become scientifically defined. And that's when I was like, man, I'm not a chemist. I'm not a man. I'm someone who just is very in touch with their emotions almost to a fault. And it wasn't until I started learning about awareness, self-management, listening, you don't really, they don't teach you those things. And so growing up and not really understanding what my strengths were, and then learning about emotional intelligence through the Junto Institute gave me a place of belonging. Emotional intelligence is what God gave me. He didn't give me the ability to... (laughs) put numbers together on a spreadsheet. I've got great teammates for that. But what God did give me is generally in any situation, I can control my emotion to help bring the best out of that situation. That's inspiring. Um, You have been one of our star students, if I may say so. And uh, why I say that is because you have been very diligent at practicing emotional intelligence over the years. And taking our skills to heart and asking clarifying questions on them and pinging me once in a while to find out how you can use some skills in different situations. Tell us about um, some of the skills that you're practicing these days. How are you doing it? What are you seeing as the outcomes? And what would you like to share with uh, with our listeners? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And, and when you asked me this, I was I was thinking, I'm like, man, what am I actually practicing? And what I'm practicing is it's a lot of it's subconscious. You know, I don't really know I'm doing it, but I am doing it. And the number one, I'll just focus on the number one thing I'm practicing, and that's being more centered, making sure my emotions don't go too far up, down, left, or right in certain situations. And I, I truly do believe it's something I think about at least once a day. But the beautiful thing about uh, about emotional intelligence is the practicing it doesn't necessarily have to be a I'm in or I'm out, right? It's something that you can practice slowly. Something as simple as better listening, right? What are, what are the steps to actually listening to somebody when they're talking to you? And once you start dabbling with emotional intelligence, those things will start becoming second nature into your head. Emotional intelligence, it doesn't require a full light on or light off and you have to be fully committed to dive into the subject. You can slowly dive in and learn certain topics, which is what what I what I believe I'm doing. So the third one would be conflict management. 
these are the three things I'm currently working on. And once I get to a point where I'm comfortable with these, I'm sure there's going to be something else that comes up in my practice that I need to improve on. Okay. Um, let's talk about listening because as, as you know, it's, if not the most important emotional intelligence skill, it very well could be the most important life skill, right? According to us at, at the Junto Institute. And we spend a lot of time and energy talking about it. And the more time and energy we spend on it, the more our apprentices and alumni uh, acknowledge how much more work they have to do because we, we sometimes take it for granted that we're effective listeners you know, in general as human beings. What specifically have you found yourself doing over the years to be a better listener? The first thing I have to do is just stop what I'm doing. Um, I actually have a really cool example of how stopping what I'm doing led to increased productivity in time. And we learned this in, in the beginning of Junto. Uh, I had a problem that a lot of my employees would just come in my office whenever they want and just start talking. And what I would do is I'd sit there, type, and they'd chat at me and I'd look back at them and chat back at them. And so they'd just walk in whenever. Then one day um, we started learning about listening <laughs> and I'll never forget this moment. And someone came to my office and I stopped what I was doing, pulled my chair out and stood up and talked to him face to face. And he, he looked at me almost shocked. Like, I just needed to ask you a quick question. You didn't need it. And because of that, when he needed to ask me questions, he made it much more serious. So the first thing you got to do is stop what you're doing, body towards the person and everything, you know, your full attention towards that person. The second thing that I like to do is, is ask clarifying questions. And it sounds so basic, but truly in order to understand what someone's talking about, you got to understand the details. And a clarifying question is different than a leading question. A clarifying question is digging into the subject that the speaker is talking about, whereas a leading question is digging into the subject that <laughs> the listener wants to bring up. And then the third and something that I'm practicing the most is to stop using I statements of myself and appreciate the other speaker for whatever they're saying. One of my biggest problems in listening is someone will say something and I'll immediately try and relate it to something that I have. That's a bad habit. And if you're not practicing emotional intelligence, you'll take a habit like that throughout your entire life and make a bad impression ar around some important people because it's not always about you. And so that's part of the listening that I've, I've taken. So you've received a lot of mentoring in your early career, and I know that you're now mentoring others as well. What has that experience been like for you? What are, and what are you getting out of it, being a mentor? It's a great feeling. It's a great reward. Um, I think at the end of the day, it's really just, you kind of, as a mentor, you, you kind of put your stamp on someone and you want to make sure that as a mentor to that person, you feel a slight responsibility to see them take your ideas and your teachings and your beliefs and use them. You know, I'm not going to mentor someone who doesn't believe in the same things I do. I'm not going to mentor someone who doesn't have the same emotional intelligence desires as I do. You know, I'll, I'll bring up a, a, just one example, Martin from Snap Clips. He was on Shark Tank. He's a good friend of mine. You know, I, I love watching this kid grow up and he's gone through some extremely difficult times and extremely amazing times, right? With Shark Tank. And then he had a co-founder that left and mentoring him through the emotions of this is, it's not just a rewarding feeling, it's a necessity. There's not many people who have gone through what I've gone through at the age of 21 or 22. And to be able to share my teachings with another person who's that age, it's it's the right thing to do. You feel like that's your calling, if you will. And, you know, Martin, I'm sure he'll probably listen to this. He's a big fan of the Junto Institute. I take pride in when he wins and I take pride in when he loses. And I know that my mentors feel the same way. You know, Raman, when, when I had my hijack a few week, a few months ago, uh, I had a really, for the listeners, I had a really bad emotional hijack where my entire day I couldn't stop thinking about doing something really bad to someone that was pissing me off. And, you know, I had to text Raman and say, Raman, what is going on? Like, I can't stop thinking about this guy and it's going to drive me crazy. I told Raman, I said, I'm going to do something really stupid today if I don't figure out. And that to me 
is my showing myself my emotional awareness and my emotional intelligence. And some people in that situation would have done things that could have cost them either a penalty or you get put, who knows? So using your mentors in certain fields to help you alleviate some of the inexperiences that you don't have. And then as an entrepreneur, you should do that to, to other people who, who you feel are in the same shoes. Um, what else do you do for personal and professional growth? Besides studying and practicing emotional intelligence, what else do you do? My entire life's about personal and professional growth. My business, my personal life, and my growth are literally all the same thing. Here's something, Raman, even something as simple as when you walk into the office, what are your employees seeing? What is that demeanor you're setting for the week? You know, one thing you taught me was on Mondays to ask how the weekend was, because then you can get a better understanding of how the week will go for certain employees based on what may or may not have happened. So first thing is nonstop trying to learn and listen on podcasts. I truly believe that podcasts are the best thing since sliced bread. You, ha- you have a 30-minute car ride or an hour flight or whatever, you pop in a podcast and you can learn so much because of that. Uh, second is reading, finding books that really that share the messages that you need. Um, something right now that I'm, I'm reading is The Power of Habit. I form really bad habits <laughs> and I can't break them. And when I want to form good habits, it's hard for me to do. So this is a book that kind of helps with that. And then, of course, learning from your peers, you know, talking to other people who are in in emotional intelligence, who have gone through certain things. Um, you know, we just sent some of our employees to emotional intelligence and I'm learning from them on some of the things that they're working on with their peers. So surrounding yourself with with more intelligent, emotionally intelligent people and people who actually care about the topic. I appreciate what you just said about habits. You said that you have a tendency to develop poor habits. I think that's what you said, right? I didn't get the words right. So here we are having this conversation between two friends who've known each other for five or six years. You've learned a lot about emotional intelligence, of which one of the competencies is self-management. And one would think that when someone has learned a lot about self-management, is practicing self-management, they should be in a good place to be able to practice self-management and build good habits and avoid building bad habits. But here you are telling us about a book that you're reading to help you with that. I'll, I'll give you an example. And you know, this uh, is probably not my most proud public moment, but one of my bad habits is alcohol. And I'm sure I'm not the only one, but I'll be one of the first to tell you about it. And so yesterday we had a, uh, a consulting session and generally one of my bad habits with alcohol is I'll have drinks at dinner. And then when I get home, yeah, you know, one or two more with a couple emails never hurts. And then uh, one or two more. And next thing you know, I'm up at midnight and I'm still doing work. And yesterday I was out with my partners and our consultant and they all had whiskeys, beers. and I didn't have anything. I had freaking water. And I'm sure they probably looked at me. They didn't say anything. They're probably, what the hell is he doing? <laughs> And this is slowly, I'm, I got to break the habit, right? Because you know what would have happened? I would have woke up this morning. I would have felt like doo-doo. And I probably wouldn't want to come here today. But I was able to break it yesterday. And that, that you know, it feels good. And that a stupid example, but alcohol was a bad habit. And it still is. Well, I'm proud of you for doing that. Because Thank you. that's one of those where it can turn into a destructive habit, right? A self-destructive habit. And so... Knowing that it takes a great deal of willpower to say no, especially in a setting like that where socially it's happening. It sounds like there was some business dynamics as well. That takes a lot of courage to do and a lot of strength. So I applaud you for doing that. Thank you. It really did. I'm not going to lie. Like even on the way there, I had to mentally prep myself. You know, I told myself I'm not going to have a drink. I said, I'm going to have a water, extra ice. I'm going to chew on the ice. And it sounds like I'm an alcoholic, but I'm not that big. I'm not like a crazy alcoholic. It's just a bad habit. And it's just trying to break that habit and being aware of that and trying to fix it. Those are the constant improvements that us who are studying and care about emotional intelligence go through. 
Okay, so um, as is custom in our sessions, Patrick, we're going to close with uh, appreciations. And um, I'll start because uh, it's what I always feel about you. Um, I just, I appreciate how hard you have worked on this and how much attention you continue to pay uh, towards getting better, not just at this, but in, um, in so many ways in your life and in your work. Uh, it's something that's inspiring to me. Uh, you talk about how you wish you would have learned these things earlier in your life. My gosh, you're learning things that many of us, you know, 20, 30 years later, wish that we would have learned back then. So I have deep appreciation for how seriously you're taking this and knowing how that is going to translate into a more fulfilling life for you. Thanks, Raman. That just makes me feel proud, you know, and, and it, it's one of those things, again, where you don't really think about it until you, you don't really think about how much, I don't think about how much time or effort I put into it. It just happens because I care about it. You know, I care about what my employees think about me. I care about what my, my mom and my family, my fiance, I care about when, when I'm at a certain event and, you know, I, I, my reputation. And so I'm, I feel very proud to sit here and kind of talk about those things because I wonder five years ago, if Patrick would have passed up on a drink, it, I, I didn't, you don't even think about that. I was working on my emotional intelligence yesterday, but I didn't even think about it. So thank you. I appreciate you taking this as seriously as you do. It's very rare that someone can know you better than you know yourself just because they know the emotions and why you're going through them. What you've done and what you've dedicated to emotional intelligence and the resource you've been to me, it simply changed my life. I mean, being able to send you a text when I have like Brahman, I was going to do some bad stuff that day. And being able to send you that text and have you diffuse the situation for me, I'm very thankful. And I think my mom would sit here and say, what the hell happened to this guy? And how did he do it? And she has no clue that I'm part of what I'm part of. And I use it against her all the time. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us on Flourishing Together. Certainly, you are a living example of someone who has flourished, is continuing to flourish, and will flourish for a long time, and uh, hope that we can continue doing it together as well. Love it. Thank you, Robin. Our next guest is John Barnes, Chief Technology Officer at Infuter Data Solutions, and someone who has been a mentor at Junto for the past six years. John has over 20 years of technology experience, specializing in cloud and mobile computing. We were introduced through a mutual friend who was also a mentor at the time, who said that John had that unique blend of being dangerous from a technology standpoint, but with strong technology skills. In fact, John likes to describe himself as someone with a track record of providing guidance, vision, and leadership to teams, while also being able to focus on reliability, scalability, and performance to help companies grow exponentially from a tech standpoint. His career has spanned young, growing companies to giants like Salesforce.com for whom he spent two years in India helping build their local mobile and quality insurance teams. John demonstrated his humility early on with Junto by learning how our mentorship program is run and taking the lead from his fellow mentors. I'll never forget how he used to just watch and listen very closely to how the other mentors were carrying themselves, conducting themselves, and speaking from direct personal experiences. And as his experience with us has grown, he's become highly effective at sharing his own experiences that resonate for, with young companies from both a tech and a leadership standpoint. Welcome, John. It's a delight having you here. Thanks, Raman. I appreciate the invite. We're going to start off with uh, your first recollection of leadership. What is it that you recall when you hear that? And uh, tell us the story. If I think about that, Kind of going back, I think others recognized leadership in, before, in me long before I recognized it myself. I think that my first recollection of leadership probably goes back. I grew up in a kind of middle class uh, you know, family. And so to pay for college, I joined the Army National Guard. And so I joined, you know, joined the military and quickly, you know, at the time, I think I was 18 or 18 when I joined, 17 when I joined and went to basic training at, eight, at 18. But within you know, two years, I kind of was promoted from kind of an E1 private to a sergeant and was put in charge of a 
of kind of I was in a, in an armor unit, so I was actually put in charge of kind of the the maintenance for the tank turret mechanics within my National Guard unit, mm-hmm. and was kind of surprised because I was managing and you know in charge of people much older than me, and so I think that was kind of my first time. I was kind of surprised that the master sergeant recognized that and kind of moved me into that role. I think you know the second point was in college. You know this is kind of shortly after that. Um, after my first year of college, I joined a, a fraternity. And joined the fraternity mid-semester because I um, you know, had started late because of the army. And after six months, when the elections came up, everybody wanted me to run for president, which kind of blew my mind. I was, mm. I was a sophomore. I didn't feel ready to take on that responsibility, mm-hmm. uh, but did become a tre- I, t- I took on the treasurer role. So I was on the executive team you know, as a sophomore, and then the next year was elected as president. So I think I was surprised by that. And I think other people saw things in me that I never, never really saw myself because I always saw myself as, as fairly quiet, fairly reserved. Um, but I think for whatever reason, other people noticed that in me before I noticed it myself. So, so it's interesting. You have this fascinating background with the military, which I want to come back to as okay, well. Sure. And so I imagine that had an influence in this next question that I've got for you, which is how you have learned leadership, um, how you've learned how to lead, how you've become a better leader. And to remind our audience, you're a CTO. You're a, you've been a technical leader for mm-hmm. much of your career. Yeah. But a big reason why you've done well with us in Junto as a, a mentor is that you have a much greater ability and awareness than, in my opinion, in my experience, a typical CTO. Right. You have you have an awareness of the importance of leadership, mm-hmm. um, and you, you're dangerous when it comes to the technical side of things, but you're also very dangerous when it comes to the people's okay. side of things. Yep. Mm-hmm. So you've acquired this over your career, right. more, okay. by, more by doing, I imagine, mm-hmm. right? right. Um, so talk a little bit about that. How have you developed into the leader you are? What did you learn along the way, bridging both your military background and your professional background? You know, as I think about mentorship, I've mentored a lot of people over the years. I think one one thing I've struggled with is I haven't always had that perfect mentor. You know, I, I like the idea of mentorship, but I never had that one person that I that I learned from. I think uh, some of it for me was, um, I think being open-minded, um, you know, as I, as I think about that a little bit, I think one of the things that makes me unique is even though I grew up in a small town in Nebraska is I always had an outward focus. And when I was 19, I saved up, you know, $2,000 or a thousand dollars or something and went off and spent six weeks in Europe backpacking. And, mm. and I remember that as being a little bit of a, one of those watershed moments where it helped me see the world, see it in a, in a bigger way and helped me understand that there's a lot more out there. And I think that turned me on even at that point, you know, early in my life about um, gathering other perspectives, learning from other people mm. that there's a lot of, a lot of different ways to do things. And so I think, you know, even early on, I started on that global path, even though I came from you know the middle of nowhere, and eventually did move into different global roles where I traveled a lot, you know, and even lived in India for, for a while, et cetera. So I would say in terms of the people side of leadership, some of it was learning by mistakes I saw other leaders doing that I worked for. Either people were checked out, weren't involved with the team, were only managing up, were overbearing. I think my, you know, some of my early roles more in corporate America, you know, thinking back to Mitchell Vomaha and Conagra, seeing people getting promoted that were only becoming friends with the boss or, or looking good. And so I think one of the things I tried to realize is as I was put in more of that leadership roles, as people recognize that in me, is just being there to support the team, to help the team, to listen to them, um, to help help make them successful, uh, open doors for them, and, and kind of be engaged with them. And also, I think one of the things I learned that helped me a lot in leadership, um, you know, he was, a, he was a new leader as well, but from Adam Kaplan at Model Metrics is transparency. So I think you know, he was, I would say, fairly early on in that. So I think that's one of the things I picked up there and then continued with Salesforce is, is this idea of transparency, which is very different than I think what I saw early in my career, where as a worker B or even as a line manager, a lot of times what was happening in the business or outside of that department was was hidden, was secret. And so this idea of transparency, trusting people to make decisions um, and then empowering people. So I think one of the reasons I, I was successful as a leader and help grow people underneath me. And I think one of the challenges I've seen as I've promoted new leaders on my team is the struggle with delegation, that a lot of people are very good at whatever their role is, but then you promote them to lead a team or lead a department or something, and they have a hard time letting go of whatever that skill was that got them there. And how do they hand hand that those tasks off that they were obviously very good at to other people on their team that may not do them you know, quite as well. So I think that's one of the transitions I've, I've tried to help coach people through. And so I think being aware of other people's needs, um, helping them grow, 
trying to balance what's right for the company and what's right for people. And sometimes that might even be somebody's ready to move on to a new role, but you know, supporting them in that, even if it makes my life harder in the short term, if they want to switch to another role in my team or another department, or if they want to leave the company, you know, trying to balance what's right for them with the company. So early on, John, you mentioned a little bit about how mentorship has helped you um, when it came to leadership. Um, I'd like to explore that a little bit more with you. Okay. What have you learned from mentorship in your career, both being a mentee, Mm -hmm. but then also being a mentor? I think I've probably learned more from mentoring others um, as I've read different business books or you know, heard, heard other people's stories. Oftentimes they have the story of this great person that invested them, met with them every week and really helped them grow. Um, I never really had that. So I, I was always more, I think of a self, self-starter, a little more self-sufficient where either I was reading books you know, early on, going back to like Stephen Covey and kind of Seven Habits in the 90s. Or um, you're finding other people, you're learning from other people as I as I worked with them or met with them. I did have someone that was on the board of, board of governors with me who is a, a physician, you know, back in college mm-hmm. on the fraternity, and he did meet with me one on one, and I think that helped me probably early on grow a little bit, even as I was struggling with leadership in that fraternity setting. You know, there's a lot of stress and pressure, um, even at that point, because one of the other fraternities at that time had an had an accident where somebody fell off a, a deck and she broke her neck. And the fraternity president was sued. And so there's a lot of stress on me balancing guys that wanted to party and have kegs and have fun with me <laughs> worrying about um, you know, getting sued and, and seeing the fraternity as something bigger than it could have been where I, I saw the idea going back to the 20s when the, 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 this fraternity started in terms of leadership, helping young men grow. But a lot of the guys there just saw it as Animal House and wanted to, to right. have a fun time. So it's you know, balancing that. Um, in terms of you know, growing from mentorship, I think I've learned a lot. So I picked up things as a self-starter. Yeah, from podcasts, from audiobooks, um, you know, different things. But I think I've learned a lot more by by giving back and just helping answering questions. And I think what happens is you don't realize how much you've gained over over the years working in different situations, different companies, different leadership. I think consulting gave me a wide variety of experiences in terms of companies, people I worked with. But I think I didn't realize how much probably knowledge I had. And sometimes it doesn't crystallize until you're actually mentoring someone else and and sharing. Really, and it's nothing magical about it. It's just really listening to what are they trying to do, what are they struggling with, do they have some questions about their career, they're trying to figure out how to handle this project or a certain situation. And so, I think sometimes you don't realize what you know and what you can give back until you're helping somebody else that um, you know sought you out. Or I've been at companies where we've put together mentorship programs, and I've been someone's mentor. And I think I've grown a lot, you know, through that or through Junto, you know, mentoring other companies. So one of the things that you've been exposed to in Junto is that we have these protocols and mm-hmm. and um, guidelines. Yes. Uh, we don't like calling them rules, uh, <laughs> although other people do, um, because we don't really enforce them yeah. that hard. Mm-hmm. But they are, as you know, they're all rooted in developing emotional intelligence right. skills mm-hmm. and attributes. And I know that this is something you uh, were speaking about on another podcast mm-hmm. recently. Yes. Um, and so it was just wonderful to, for me to see that it is something that you find important. Talk a little bit about how you, what have you done to learn about emotional intelligence? And then secondly, almost more importantly, is how have you brought that into your life and your work? Sure. I think as I as I think about emotional intelligence, I think it's as far as I know, it's a newer term that you know, has hasn't been around you know, more than five or ten years or something. I think I learned about it going back to my yeah, probably a lot of it was I would give credit to my wife. Her father did a lot of counseling, was fairly emotionally intelligent, mm-hmm. was you know, helping people, you know, reading a lot of books. And so I think from her and from talking to her family, I picked up a lot of that just through the years and it helped me grow from you know, just somebody that had no exposure to that growing up in my family. So I think I had a little bit of a background with that. Mm-hmm. Um, with, within Junto, the protocols, I think, are, are really key. It, it helped me. I think you've probably seen me grow as, as I've, I've done, I think, now four or five cohorts at this point. Um, you know, as a, as a, not a, not a strong extrovert, one of the things that's helped me is, you know, just some of the, the protocols in terms of allowing everybody to speak um, once before somebody else speaks twice. Because I think when you're, in a, in a board setting or a junto setting, you're going to have strong personalities. People have experiences they want to share. They want to share advice. I think the idea of sharing experiences is so much better because um, if you're just telling you know this, this young CEO or this company that's struggling with a hard question what to do, they're not really going to learn. But by picking up 
those shared experiences. It's going to help them understand what might um, help them in that situation or, or future situations. And with the emotional intelligence piece too, is it's important to look under the covers of when somebody's mad or somebody's stressed, you know, what's behind that, what's driving them. Yeah. Um, you know, thinking about the bigger picture, not just labeling them in a certain way, but um, you know, giving them the grace to to vent or kind of go through that situation and kind of explore what's kind of under the covers, not always reacting to what's on the surface. It has helped me a lot, you know, whether I'm de- dealing with employees or or kind of men- or mentoring people. So, John, I'm fascinated by the fact that I'm learning that you spent six years in the military. Uh, and I realized that, yes, it was with the National Guard, but still mm-hmm. uh, American military, it has its paradigms, especially those of us who didn't serve. Sure. You know, we uh-huh. have this belief of what the military might be like, mm-hmm. and especially in the context of leadership. It provides an interesting contrast to where we are today as a society and being much more humanity-driven, mm-hmm. um, which fortunately corporate America is also catching up to. What I'm envisioning in my mind is this Venn diagram. One circle is John Barnes, the human being. The second circle is John Barnes, the military officer. Mm-hmm. And the third circle is John Barnes, a corporate manager slash executive. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how you see those three things coming together, how you have bounced around amongst them. Mm-hmm. Um, like I have a hard time envisioning John <laughs> as a classic military dude, right. but I also have a hard time envisioning you as a classic corporate dude. Okay. Right? Yeah. I just see a very human Okay. version of John every day. Sure. Um, so I would love to, to to take that wherever you'd like. Sure. I think I didn't seek out the military per se. I, I came from a family where I, m- I remember when I was in high school, my dad sat me down and said, well, if you want to go to college, I can't afford to send you. I went to the military if you if you want to do college. And I think he, you know, he definitely supported that. I was the oldest was that uh, the National Guard was my only only route to do that. So it was something I was forced into more financially. It wasn't something I, I really sought out. Mm-hmm. I remember taking the tests in high school in terms of you know, going that direction. But I think I, was, I wasn't really sure what to expect. Yeah, this was, I joined the military in 19, I think 89 or 90. And so it was still at that point, nothing had happened since Vietnam. But at the time, a lot of the movies that were popular were Platoon and Full Metal Jacket. And yeah. So the military was a scary thing. I think it's probably softened some since then, but uh, very intimidated going in with the, the drill sergeants and the leadership. It was a very hard environment to to go through. So I think I was surprised how hard it was. But I think looking back, what I got from that was learning about discipline, learning about um, you know, just the value of of following rules and even very simple things. Like I was surprised they would do like you were required even a basic training in Fort Leonard with Missouri to have all of your socks rolled perfectly in a certain line, hmm. have your uniforms a certain way, to always have your boots shined, to have your bed made perfectly. And the drill sergeant could come at any point and do an inspection. And if he found things out of whack, he would throw everything out of your closet, you know, make you do push-ups, you know, rip your bed apart. You'd have hmm. to take extra duty. So I think learning the just that idea, what they really drilled into us was if you take care of your equipment, your equipment will take care of you. And so I think that you know, built some really good habits mm-hmm. early on that that I did apply to leadership and just working that it's important to anything worth doing is worth doing well, doing things with excellence, uh, discipline, following through. So I took the, I think the good parts of of the military without necessarily the the, the hardcore make people drop and do push-ups, yeah. um, you know, side of things. So I think that's probably the military part of the of that Venn diagram. Yeah. Yeah. On the, on the corporate side of the the Venn diagram, you know, I started out working for very large, you know, Fortune 500 companies, and really struggled with that. Even at Mutual of Omaha, mm-hmm. I remember after you know, even beyond the the joking about my first manager, struggling with just the inefficiencies. So I was a I was a developer in this company. There were a thousand people in IT at the time. It was doing mainframe development. Just seeing all the inefficiencies, wondering how anything even got done. How did this company even make money? You know, I'd, I would talk to people at lunch and find out some other, some other person on another floor is essentially tackling the same problem we are with a different software package and just realizing there's a lot of duplication of effort, frustration of, of you know, just the red tape and bureaucracy mm-hmm. of that. So I, I think I've gradually worked towards smaller and smaller companies. Um, as I left Mutual of Omaha, I went to ConAgra and then moved to a smaller company in Georgia. And I remember when I left Omaha, what, what surprised me is how scared a lot of the people were when I mentioned I was quitting because I think I threatened their view of life because a lot of these people and a lot of them are still there. They've worked there for 30 or wow. 40 years and kind of continue on that. So the idea of somebody being willing to take a risk, move to another town, move to a smaller company, it was very scary to them. So I think part of my early on job changes were financial. You know, at that time you would make 20 or 30 or 40% more switching jobs. Mm-hmm. Some of it was to try new technology, but I think it also really opened my eyes to challenge and it's worth 
it's worth taking calculated risks. And so I enjoyed moving more towards smaller companies and eventually, you know, almost more of a, more of a startup with model metrics, where I was the eighth employee, took a risk joining something very small and helped that you know, grow to 250 people until it got acquired by Salesforce. So I've been through that. Salesforce is a great company as well, but it mm-hmm. got fairly big. And so that kind of drove part of my move to my last company was going back to something smaller. And I think that's what I've learned you know, in, in this role is things that I took for granted at Salesforce, you know, coming back to a smaller company or even to, to some of the people I've mentored in Junto can seem like rocket science and I take for granted. So I think I think I, I realized I'm, I'm probably better in, in a smaller mid-sized company versus a, a large company. And then in terms of the, the person, I think, like you said, I'm probably a little bit unique in the fact that I come from a small town. You have this military background, more of a self-starter. My dad was a teacher. So a lot of the people I've worked with over the years find out their dad was, you know, some executive at a consulting company or ran a sales team. I never had that. So I think I've always had to be a little scrappier learning about business, you know, starting out as a technical person, but then learning more about sales and business um, and realizing that I have skills, you know, more in that business area. I think one of the first times I realized that was at a Genesis, which was a startup based in the, in the Bay area. I went to um, after that company in Georgia and for a while, I moved into a sales engineering role because I wanted to move out of consulting and was in a meeting with the, the CEO of the company. And he was shocked at how good I was in a sales situation. I remember he called me a silver tongue devil. He's like, wow, you can just sell anything, which shocked me because I never saw myself as a salesperson. But I think I realized that, yeah, I have that unique skill that I, I can get very technical with my team. But I think part of the reason I was allowed to kind of grow into more of a leadership role is I see technology as a tool to achieve business goals. I love technology and want to geek out on things. But I wouldn't do something unless it made you know, business sense and it helped you know, solve a business problem or help the company you know, grow or progress in a, in a certain manner. So it's in my in my world, that's always been my balance. Nice. So, John, we're going to end like we do our Junto sessions with uh, closing appreciations. In terms of appreciations, I, I appreciate you, Raman, and Junto. I, I think I've learned more than I've than I've given to other companies. So I appreciate that you recognized and, and let me participate you know, in this process. I've been exposed to some amazing mentors over the years, and I've grown a lot you know, through this process. So I think with different cohorts, I've been in different different parts of my career where sometimes I was able to participate more or less. But you just appreciate the opportunity to be involved in this network for the connections that you've helped me make and, and the people I've met through the through the Junto process. Thank you. It's it's been an honor and a privilege to ha- to have you involved. I appreciate learning uh, so much more about you. Just in this uh, in this brief time, uh, we are as human beings, you know, much like diamonds, we're multifaceted mm-hmm. individuals. And to discover that um, one of those facets of John is the military background, <laughs> yeah, another facet, <laughs> uh, another facet is the fact that uh, you have some natural sales skills. Uh, that's <laughs> brand new for me. Okay, and also just the facet uh, that. I learned of more recently, but still is something that I deeply appreciate is um, how emotional intelligence has played a bigger part of your life than mm-hmm. I originally thought. And, yeah. and knowing the influence that your wife and her family has had on uh-huh. you um, is pretty inspiring. So okay. yeah, pretty large appreciation there for <laughs> how much more I have come to know you and appreciate you okay. just in this last half an hour or so than over the past five years, perhaps. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thanks, John. Appreciate having you on the show. And um, that's a wrap. All right. So as I reflect on these conversations with Patrick Tanuz and John Barnes, I couldn't help but come back to this idea of potential and uh, namely the unlimited potential that we all have as human beings. It was really cool to hear Patrick talk about discovering as a young person that he had unlimited potential. Uh, But it's one of those phrases that gets tossed around quite a bit. Um, It's a little bit of a cliche. And I sometimes wonder whether we take those two words, which are, you know, pretty common words, a little bit for granted and uh, not really understand the the, the true gravity of it. In Junto, one of my favorite sayings is that it doesn't matter how emotionally intelligent we are. What matters is how emotionally intelligent we can be. And that statement, that that phrase, that um, favorite Uh, saying of mine is kind of rooted in this idea of unlimited potential. And I'm going to repeat it again here because I'm going to talk more about um, why I I began saying that. It doesn't matter how emotionally intelligent we are. What matters is how emotionally intelligent we can be.
So as we've been doing this work in emotional intelligence, we've discovered that people tend to do one or both of the following. They tend to evaluate themselves, whether they've taken an assessment or not, and they tend to evaluate and judge other people based on uh, whether they have higher or, or lower emotional intelligence in their opinion. What's interesting is that research has found that each of us as a human being has an unlimited capacity to develop our emotional intelligence or measured by assessments, our EQ. And that's everyone. So we all have an unlimited capacity to develop this. In contrast, after the age of 18, our cognitive intelligence, which is measured by IQ, has a very limited variability, believed to be about 10% through our life. So basically, what that means is that we have limited potential when it comes to cognitive intelligence and unlimited potential when it comes to emotional intelligence. In my work with personal and professional growth, I've come to the conclusion that we don't even know what our own potential is and what, how unlimited it truly is. And in truth, that it's other people who have a better idea of our potential. You see, we don't have the ability to see who we are on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, on a minute-by-minute -minute basis. We don't have the ability to see how we do things, how we interact with other people. And most importantly, that results in the ability of not knowing how we're viewed. Our coaches, however, our mentors, our teachers, our friends, our family, the people who we spend time with on a daily basis, they're the ones who have a much clearer ability to see us as who we are and who we really can be. So then the question becomes, if we don't have that ability to truly see ourselves because we don't carry a mirror around with us every day, how do we tap into this unlimited potential that, that really exists within us? We heard a few things from both Patrick and John on approaches that have worked for each of them. And since I'm familiar with uh, not only what they've done, but also the bigger picture uh, in, in, as far as the context in which they've practiced them, I wanted to break some of those things down in a way that hopefully can get to this idea of how we ourselves can help develop our own potential. By no means am, am I suggesting that by doing these things, we're going to tap into this unlimited potential. But my goodness, if we can tap into a small microcosm of that unlimited potential on a periodic basis, and over time start to build a practice where we're doing that, we now have much greater ability for us to accelerate our personal growth. So let's start with one of these, which is um, habit formation. There are a lot of theories and little evidence about how we build um, habits and how long it takes and the work we have to do. Is it really 21 days as it is espoused by some experts and, and in some books? Is it thousands of hours um, as is oftentimes talked about, especially in relation to mastering things. Uh, it takes 10,000 hours, apparently, to master something. Um, at what point does a habit get built? Is it 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 hours? Well, at Junto, we have quite a bit of experience with this because um, it's one of the outcomes of the work that our apprentices do to become better leaders through our program. And there's a couple of things that I've experienced both personally in my own habit development, but then also through um, observation in hundreds and hundreds of sessions over the years uh, through the Junto Institute. The first is that a habit is an outcome of a process. And that process can take many forms, but it starts with attempting something new or experimenting. And over time, that something that's being experimented with or attempted, if it is repeated over and over again, it can become a skill. And then when that skill is performed over and over again, the habit begins developing. I share this because I think sometimes people oversimplify the ease or the time with which habits can be formed. Habits are an outcome of a process. They're not a step in the process. And as a result, the more we focus on the process, the more likely it is that we're going to be able to build habits. I'm going to use a, a personal and very simple example here to, to make the point. Um, and it relates to something that I'm sure a lot of people can relate to or, or understand. So recently, um, a few months ago, I, I wanted to begin making some changes to, to my diet um, as somebody who's in midlife and starting to look at my long-term health. 
And so I began studying this um, concept called blue zones, uh, which is based on a book where uh, they studied the places in the world, the five places in the world where people live the longest. And then they reverse engineered kind of how these people live their lives. And then specifically, one of the items was how they uh, eat, what their diet is. So they also do a four-week challenge, like so many um, organizations do at the beginning of the year, to kind of align with people's New Year's resolutions. And so ultimately, if, if my intent, if my habit is to eat better in order to support longevity, I need to get into a process uh, rather than just focusing on the habit. And so I saw this four-week challenge as a means to start to do that. Uh, so what did I have to do in order to engage that process? Well, I'd have to research the recipes that seemed appealing to me. I had to go out and buy the food. I had to prepare the food. I have to eat the food. And then I have to do it for another week. And then I've got to do it for another couple of weeks. And over the course of time, I'm starting to build a new routine of shopping, preparing, and eating. I'm building the habit, but the keyword is building. I'm not getting there just yet. Uh, in fact, I'm now about four or five months into this, and I... I'd like to think that I'm about 70 to 80% there. Um, I still get tempted into my old ways, tend to um, fall off the wagon, if you will, for one, one or two days a week, but I'm, I'm aware of it, um, and that alone can, can help. And so what I'm hoping is that as I do this for a good six, nine, 12 months, I will get to a place where it then becomes a habit, and the way that I go about my week-to-week -week routine in terms of planning my consumption of food, uh, how I go shopping, how I prepare my food, when I eat, how I eat, with whom I eat, all is an outcome of this year-long process that I would have undertaken to uh, change the, ultimately my diet in for the purpose of, of longevity. Uh, second example I'll use is from a really wonderful groundbreaking book from a few years ago called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. And uh, it was something that was so transformative for us at Junto that we decided to adopt it um, as part of our uh, program with respect to skill development. And so he uh, did a bunch of research with psycho psychologists and neuroscientists to understand how the brain actually operates when it is building habits, both negative habits and positive habits, and then what must be done in order to change negative habits as well as what must be done to build positive habits. So he ended up boiling everything down into this three-step process that must occur for habits to be formed. And this is terribly simple, uh, but it was an outcome of all the work that he did. The three-step process includes the following. First step is a cue, and that's C-U-E. Second step is a routine, and the third step is a reward. And so, for instance, he, he contends that every habit that we have or want to, to have has or must have a, a cue. And so um, he talks a lot about smoking as a habit. And I can't relate to that because I've never uh, smoked in my life. But he says that people who are smokers tend to have a cue in order to have a when they want to have a smoke, when they want to have a cigarette. And sometimes it might be a meal. Sometimes it might be a stressful situation. Sometimes it might be waking up. Um, the second step of the process is a routine. And the routine is really the, 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 the steps that we take in order to actually fulfill or realize, I should say, the behavior that is a, a kind of endemic to that habit. And so that routine might be back to the cigarettes is um, finding a cigarette, pulling it out, lighting it. And for many people, taking a really deep drag on the first couple uh, puffs that they take. And then the, the third step um, is reward, which is what we get from practicing that behavior. And so Charles Duhigg talks about how even when we're changing our habits, we need to put into place a cue, routine, and reward. At Junto, what we did is uh, we have a bunch of leadership skills that our apprentices learn that are all rooted in the science of emotional intelligence. And they start from things such as simple as um, how to build greater self-awareness, to how to listen more effectively, and to more complex ones such as um, how to manage and resolve conflict uh, with other people, and how to build greater emotional resilience. 
And so each of these are, again, very specific skills. But what we did is we decided to break them down into the, a cue, routine, and reward so that people could see that there was some method to the madness in this. And that way, they're also much more aware and conscious that in order to employ the routine, which is sometimes where we jumped to, there must first be a cue. And so um, as an example, as a leader, one of the best cues that we have is anytime we're about to have a, an, an interaction with one of our team members. And it could be an informal one-on-one -on -one conversation. It could be a formal uh, team meeting. Another cue might be when someone confronts us. And so the whole idea is, is that the cue engages our self-awareness in order to then begin the routine, which engages our self-management. I'll give an example of how repetition plays a role in all of this uh, in order to build habits. Um, it, was pretty, it was something pretty cool I saw on the news recently. And it was about an app that shows uh, the arc of your basketball shot. Um, so the app connects with your camera on your phone. And for uh, basketball players, I, I presume you know more uh, amateur basketball players, they use this app in order to measure and compare the arc of their basketball shot from one place on the floor relative to the basket. So uh, in this little news episode, what they showed was the reporter uh, who was doing the, the piece, he was shooting a, a basketball from the three-point line. And as you might, and he admitted he doesn't play basketball a whole lot. And as you might imagine, the arc of his shot from that same spot for about eight or 10 shots was very different because he doesn't play basketball a whole lot. Then they had an NBA player uh, from the New Jersey Nets who took the same shot from the same spot at the three-point line. And as you might imagine, his arc was almost exactly the same for about eight to 10 shots. And the point is, is that that professional player has a habit of shooting that same way over and over again. His habit is an outcome of the process that he has been following for years of practicing these shots thousands and thousands of times over the course of his childhood and his adulthood. And as a result, the outcome is this habit of how he holds the basketball, places it on his hand, supports it with his other hand, lets it go from the same spot in the air relative to the floor, relative to the basket, and that results in the exact same arc every single time. And truth be told, as we know, for anytime we watch basketball, they don't make all their shots. But the point is, is that they have a much greater likelihood of making those shots if they have the same process that's going through it. And that's a result of um, building this habit of taking thousands and thousands of shots over their life and career, if not hundreds of thousands of shots. And like John Barnes talked about uh, with respect to his military experience, all of this requires discipline, a regimen and a mindset to stay focused on the task at hand, which is to become better at something and to keep our attention focused on that task at hand. And the more that we do this, the more that we engage the process that is required to develop a habit, the more that we apply discipline to that process, I will argue that the more able we are to tap into this unlimited potential that we have. So to bring all of this back to what we do in our roles as leaders, the question for us is, what are we doing on a regular basis to tap into our unlimited potential as a leader? What is it that you're doing on a daily basis to tap into that potential? How are you working on new ideas, new skills, and new habits that make you more effective? How can you practice repetition, just like the basketball player, in the interests of becoming better long-term rather than solving a short-term problem? How can you use Charles Duhigg's framework of building cues, routines, and rewards to structure your habit building? And of course, how can you build the discipline to actually do it? The more that we ponder these questions and reflect on the steps that we can take on a daily basis to build stronger habits, to focus on the process and apply discipline to all of that, the more likely it is that we're going to be able to tap into this really incredible potential that each one of us has and take greater control over it. Because like I said, we can't see that potential ourselves. I believe that only other people can see it. 
but then all of a sudden we have a greater power to start bridging that gap a little bit. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the next episode. This episode was produced by Dante32.